You're listening to Mastering Mind and Body, a chat about being uber-human. Welcome to this new podcast series here in Singapore. My name is Marcus Knirk. Let's kick it off. Who are you? <laughs> and every single picture I found was anything with doing extreme sports, like surfing, mountain biking, cycling, running. Mm. On LinkedIn, you only have the one that looking very professional, actually. So I was trying to put it up kind of with, a, with the right description of, of, of Ned Phillips. Mm-hmm. And I think it's anything from a fintech entrepreneur, you're doing fintech, when it even wasn't called fintech. Mm-hmm. You are now running your own company, but also you, you, have, you have an entire portfolio of, of sports you're doing. What's the best way you describe yourself? <laughs> the simple way, so I, it's a good question and I haven't thought about it uh, directly, but uh, you know this phrase that you relentlessly try never to grow up. And I think, you know, you sometimes, I, I still use this phrase, like there's certain people I really admire, the range of people, most of them generally are adventurers, right? So it's not that I don't respect business people, um, but there's one gentleman in particular called Mark Jenkins. He's a very famous adventure writer. And he always uses the phrase, when I grow up. And I think a lot of the adventure sports, so he had to describe, is trying not to grow up, which I know from a business perspective sounds a little odd. But I think all of the adventure stuff that I do, whether it's uh, mountain biking or surfing, it is this relentless belief that if you, A, that I enjoy it a huge amount. But if you always do that, you're never going to grow up. And I think if you get to 100 and have never grown up, that would be awesome. Mm. So I, I would use the phrase, somebody who does as many activities as they can to never grow up. What's then your inner age, if you would put an age onto you right now? Mm, that's a great question. I'll go with 16. 16? Yeah. In the teens? In the teens. Yeah. In the teens. It is. I love this word relentless. This, this, so you, I, I use for entrepreneurship, I use relentless positivity, right? I mean, look, you... You, you, you work in your own business now, you know how hard it is. And, you know, it sucks sometimes, right? And, you know, stuff is super hard. And if you try to be relentlessly positive, and it's not like it's so, I talk about my dad quite a lot. And I was just back at home this weekend, and uh, he's a neural network guy. And he used the words, the, the condition he has is uh, over-adrenalized. So my dad has a condition. He actually has an irregular heartbeat. He's always had it. My dad, as much as the people who know me think I'm a little overexcitable, my dad is way worse. Uh, his father uh, was a British boxing champion. He invented yan, uh, a sand yachting and was a 400-meter champion in the army in the 1920s. My dad, who, you know, not from a sports perspective, but always he still harvests all his own vegetables uh, at age 81 and feeds himself. So I think my biggest issue is I have a gene of being over-adrenalized, which leads to a willingness to surf and mountain bike and run and jump. And then is that entrepreneurship? It probably is too. And on my mum's side, my uh, grandfather was a huge risk taker. Made millions, lost millions, made millions, lost millions. So maybe I take a little bit of That explains so much now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, glad glad I covered this now. Wow. All right. So you have a lineage of being crazy. From, from, it seems from, so. From both sides, mom and dad. It seems uh, so. Interesting. So um, you're actually the first entrepreneur on, on, on this show. Okay, cool. Yeah, so far, I had covered mostly investors and other uh, athletes. But I think you combine entrepreneurship and endurance sports and extreme sports now. So I'm very, yep. very glad to have you. Um, let's talk about entrepreneurship then. Okay. A bit of a time. So what's your journey of entrepreneurship? What have you done uh, from all the days back um, from 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 each rate now yep. to not to bamboo. Yep. What's what's happening? So uh, I came out of university uh, with an economics degree and found myself selling insurance door to door. Best 
true. So that was probably my hardest entrepreneurship journey ever. I was on a commission only selling insurance. And if that, it wasn't my own business, I worked for a company, but if that is an entrepreneurship, nothing is. And uh, my journey, it, honestly, everything feels easy since then. So it was 1989, I'm in London, we had phone books. And, you know, seriously, they, I mean, I don't think it was exactly as they hired 26 people and gave each salesman A or B or C in the phone book, but it genuinely felt like that. I think I got B or something. And literally, that's how it was. And you would open a phone book and it would have all the Mr. or Mrs. B's in London. And a lot of the names were already scratched out by previous salesmen who had already called them once. And we were told you do 40 calls every morning and five meetings every afternoon and evening. And I found myself, you know, pounding the streets of London, knocking on people's doors late at night. And uh, it was really hard, but I earned a little bit of money. And that installed me a sale. So I think entrepreneurship in my world, in my head, is about sales. And I think everything feels easy. After knocking at a, on a winter's night, walking in the rain in London, knocking on people's doors, selling insurance, and they use rather uh, uh, strong words to tell you why they don't want to see you. I then sold fertilizer over the phone. So I tell people I sold shit over the phone. I sold garden fertilizer over the phone. And all of that is entrepreneurship. So, you know, I worked in a regular job, E-Trade, which was fintech, but I was a sales guy. I've always been a sales guy, and I think my strongest capability, we all have masses of weaknesses, and I have a huge amount, the biggest being that I run a software company, but I'm not a tech guy, is that I'm a sales guy and a people person, and I, and I think that's what, I, that's what I've learned. And I think for me, entrepreneurship journey is learning that it's all and only about people. That is my strongest learning. So in actually, so I was in Hong Kong. I uh, ended up on a week's notice uh, buying out a company with a friend of mine who we were working for and we had the chance to buy it out. Uh, we took it through the Asian financial crisis. And when I say I took it through, we uh, uh, destroyed it and uh, lost all of our money. So that was my first journey. I got the best lesson ever there. The guy who gave us the money, he asked me, uh, it was a publishing business, financial publishing. This is, this is uh, if any listeners are going to take one lesson, this is the only lesson I've learned. He said, what is your vision? And I said, my vision is to IPO. I was like 28. And he said, no, that's the result of your vision. That's not your vision. And I remember it stuck with me. And he said to me, he was quite a religious guy, kind of Buddhist karma. And he was like, do what you do every day. And it will be what it will be. If your vision is the money you will have at the end of it, that isn't going to get you anywhere. Um, and I'll, I'll, we'll come to endurance sport, but the phrase chop wood carrying water, I'll come back to that. So, the, the, you know, so I did that. I failed. I lost everything. So after eight years in Hong Kong, we lost everything. Uh, I was getting married. I had a kid. I had no cash flow at home, no cash flow at work. I used to sit on the ferry between Hong Kong and Discovery Bay. It was the only place where cash flow wasn't an issue. <laughs> I could sit on the ferry. I got home. We had no money. I went to work. We had no money. I did a little bit in between. It was awesome. Uh, and then so each trade I worked in finance and then really about you know a few years ago I stepped out of the corporate world back to a few startups so I've actually invested in about eight startups myself and then I saw all these young I mean forgive me I know you're younger than me uh, I, the I term is young all these people who were doing startups and uh, I worked for eight securities a robo and I thought I actually had lunch with Ludovic Blanquet who works at Mises and he said you should do fintech I was like that's a good idea and really you know bamboo came from that my kind of 20 years in business my the ability to knock a thousand doors, and uh, then I'm an Aki, and uh, that's my entrepreneurship journey. So, what's uh, the bamboo pitch? Sure, uh, that saving an investment is going digital, and as a bank, you need to provide that to your customer. So, the analogy was 25 years ago, all stock trading was by a broker, so it was offline. You spoke to somebody, and today, I think everybody trades online. Today, wealth saving and investment is an offline activity mainly, and it's 
completely going online. And, you know, we've refined our pitch over times, but uh, we go to a bank and say, your customers, in terms of their saving and investment, deserve a beautiful, personalized, and automated experience. And we pitch that we can build them a beautiful application. So we have designers uh, with a great robo-advisory journey. We can personalize it. So we took our analytics and say, rather than just are you low or high risk, based on your age and your likes, what is the right investment journey for you? And we can automate that, i.e. which investment product you should have. And you know that's our pitch to banks. And I think they get the automated bit, but when we talk about beautiful, personalized finance on an application, they get that, but who in the bank can build that? So that's our pitch. It's been pretty successful. We have 14 clients today. Like We just took a new photo in the road. Some people may have seen on our website. So when we started it, it was just me. I took a selfie of myself. Then there was six, then there was 16. We just took a photo and there was 37 of us. It's getting a bit scary. I've been very glad to see the journey of actually from, from day one. <laughs> Absolutely. Even like minus day, one and minus one day, right? You have. Um, and, and, and yeah, you were you just two, two of you or one of you and then two of you. And now we just have the entire team downstairs sitting there. We do. Ha- hacking away. We yeah. do. Yeah, it's very nice. Um, how has fintech changed from the days when it wasn't called fintech at E-Trade and others? And now, yeah. what have you seen in the last decades? When we started E-Trade, well, I wasn't there at the start. They started a long time. But when I joined in 97, 98, you know, we, this, the biggest thing that was back then, everyone was like, you guys are s- stupid. It's too strong a word. But everyone's always going to use a broker. So, you know, I don't know payments or other areas of fintech. But in the area we were in, which was online broken, we were told pretty relentlessly that we were wrong. The biggest change today is no one thinks fintech is wrong. That's the biggest change. Look, PayPal, I, I, I don't know them at all, but I get, guarantee when they started, they were told you were wrong. No, 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 it's not going to work this way. And uh, even I would say in the early 2000s, we had the dot-com, remember the dot-com boom and bust and you know pets.com and all these crazy internet ideas. Look what came out of that, Amazon and all amazing companies. So fintech's not new. Bloomberg is a fintech company. Visa's a fintech company. PayPal's a fintech company. The biggest difference today is no one thinks fintech is wrong, whereas we were told. Now, it may be wrong, I don't know, but the crowd. So the biggest difference today is the crowd is rushing towards fintech. So is it then almost too easy to start a fintech company these days? It's, it, yes, it's the easiest time ever. So my, my way I say it is, I think it's really, 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 really hard to do a tech startup. I think today it's only really, really hard. It's a few reallys less. It's the easiest time to start a fintech ever. The downside is everyone thinks it's easy. It's not easy. It's the easiest. It's relative. Still crazy hard. It still takes crazy amount of luck. I genuinely think this is the best time to give it a go. And for me, at 51, I, don't, I can't wait. I can't have any thought process. Will it ever be easier? For me, it's right now. Yeah. The problem is everyone then thinks it's easy. It's not. Mm-hmm. But it is the best time. And then how does it work as a sales guy to run a tech company? Oh, it's crazy easy. And this is where I get on my high horse. I think people... Uh, I think people think you build great tech and people buy it. That's just so untrue. I think people don't make a thousand calls. I think that, I'm not trying to say I'm the best sales guy or whatever. I think that insurance, door-to-door salesman selling garden fertilizer over the phone. I remember they used to say 100 calls a day. If you didn't make 100 calls a day, we will dock your pay. And the pay was zero because it was commission only. You actually owed them money if you didn't make 100 calls a day. You think about that, it's crazy. How many startups today are making 100 calls? Now, the reality is cold calls don't work in the same way today. I totally accept that. But we get told quite often, you know, we, you, you know me, I, I stand up at every startup event. I stand up at every conference. And what we've learned is people call us now because we've worked so incredibly hard at selling who we are. I think sales is the, 
Everyone talks at these fintech conferences about innovation and profitability and disruption. How often do, do, do people stand up and talk about sales? I don't think they do. I think most tech com you know, companies only go bust for one reason. They run out of money. Why do they run out of money? It's not because they spent too much. It's because they didn't earn enough. I think the sales is a, is a losing art form. I think it's a pity. Uh, I think it's changed. Like, I get it. We're not door knockers, call, call salesmen. I, I think people, uh, it's scary. The telephone's a super scary thing. How many people want to make a cold call to somebody? I don't, I don't think people want to do that anymore, right? So you've seen now, actually, you're probably the minority of people who have seen fintech cycles. I don't True. think many of us have actually seen that. <laughs> so where do you think we are now in this sure. fintech cycle, up, down, hype, not hype? Sure. Uh, if, we, if we took it at zero to the start, one to the top, and zero back down, uh, I'm guessing 0.4, on the way up. So I think we have another few years to go back up. Uh, before it comes back down in the same way that, you know, in the early 2000s, so the dot-com boom was probably 97, 98, 99, 2000, 2001. Oh, it's the end of the world, come back down. Whether the credit cycle into the global financial crisis. You know, as humans, we're super, uh, no one wants to run against the herd, right? If everybody's running one way, you want to run with them. So right now, everyone's running in the fintech direction. It only takes 10 really important people at the front to turn around and run the other way we all run too, right? So I, th I don't think it's going to change because fintech is the wrong answer. Fintech is the right answer. Nobody wants to have a more friction. See, fintech is, uh, is less friction. And everything about fintech, whether it's blockchain or peer-to-peer -peer or crowdfunding, is less friction. Nobody wants more friction. So fintech is the right answer all the way. The problem is we have a couple of big black swan, whatever you call them. And whether that's in blockchain or crypto or peer-to-peer -peer or crowdfunding or or in markets, you know, if, if the Dow falls 50% tomorrow, fintech's suddenly not cool. All those billions of dollars of innovation budget disappear. So I think genuinely fintech's continually on a rise, but I think a black swan event, or not even black swan, just a market falls 50%, Bitcoin goes to zero, a, a range of things change, and everyone's like, oh, wow, fintech's not the right idea. It's still the right idea. Mm. But I think we're 0.4.5 on the way up. I selfishly... I think it's another five years, I'll be 56. That'll be good enough for me. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Great. I mean, we could spend probably the whole morning talking about fintech. Sure. Um, but I want to slightly now move on to actually that kind of second part of this because it's not just a fintech podcast, it's actually a Mastery Mind and Body podcast. Yep. And I believe that you have a second side to you, a very personal side, which is endurance yep. sports. Yep. Which I guess is connected to fintech entrepreneurship. Yep. Um, so how do we enter this now? Uh, what have you done in the past? Uh, with your endurance sports and what's your track record, if you like, in that guy? I'll make, it, I'll make it pretty short. Like all people, we do what we're good at. I found that I was never very good at any sports at school. I played rugby because I got teased. If I didn't, I sucked at it. And I found that I still got teased, which wasn't fun. Uh, and I never really ran a lot. But uh, after I was like, so I didn't do any endurance sports till I was 28. And I was working in Hong Kong. And a guy stood up in the office and said, so this was this like kind of single point in time. He said, who wants to run 100K with me? And honestly, I was just like, yeah, I'll do that. That's cool. I'll do that. And it was this, you know, I talk about it in the TED talk I gave. It seemed super cheesy as if I made it up. Honestly, like the guy's Justin Hodge, still a friend. And it started from there. And then the first time we ran 100K, and again, this is just male ego selfishness. We came third out of a thousand teams. And we were like, whoa, okay. Not only did I kind of enjoy that, apart from all the things I didn't know about like, using Vaseline to uh, stop uh, rashes on long-distance sports and all the other how to eat properly, what not to eat, and what not to do. It was 
So cool. I never enjoyed it. And from there, I got into uh, triathlon, marathon running, uh, Ironman, uh, long-distance bike race, 100-mile uh, runs. And I found a relentless ability to, un to enjoy it endlessly. I found myself thinking about it every day. And I realized that I had, it sounds super cheesy, but I found something I will do forever. I really will. I'd never found anything as much fun, as weird, as, uh, and something that I, yeah, I couldn't imagine not doing, because I did. I spent a year with a back injury not running, and I hated it mm. a lot. Yeah. The will to do such races yeah. was, at, when you're 28, was probably falling on some fertile ground, because you have a personality anyway that wants to achieve things. Yep. From selling insurances from door to door in the UK to, to now running fintech companies. Um, how has it, however, how have you changed with these marathons, Ironmans, endurance sports? Um, have you seen any, 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 any change in personality and change to your approach uh, based on that? Sure. Um, I, I use the body a lot. So I found, so endurance sports, I don't think are a skill-based activity. They're a, a drive. Some people have innate slow twitch that can run all day. So if we take that away, uh, you can train yourself to do endurance sports. So I used to think, I just train really hard. I swim more, I bike more, I run more, I will get better. And uh, it did work to a degree. And so I, you know, I had this big desire to go to Kona, the, you know, the Ironman World Championships, and I trained really hard, really stupidly for a really long time. Didn't use a coach, thought I knew everything. I mean, some of the amusing antidotes that my friends will tell you about how I, I actually thought of my first Ironman, I'm just going to sprint the whole way, it'll be totally fine. I trained so hard, it will be awesome. You know, and I, I got to like K30 on the bike, I was falling apart, and I, Honestly, like I even wrote in my report, I'm like, I was baffled when I came in and the clock showed like an hour more than I thought. And the biggest reason I've changed and maybe sitting here today is uh, I found a single coach who told me, you know, if you are not thinking about the mind, it doesn't matter how much you train. And today, maybe because I'm older, right? As you get older, you realize how, how little you know. And so sitting as 50, I probably think I was stupid at 30. So when I get to 70, I assume I'm stupid today. Uh, but the biggest thing I've changed is uh, one coach gave me this idea of using the mind and using like a mindfulness approach. And you know, within six months, so you know, science-based, four years, three years of trying to get to Kona, couldn't do it. Six months, use, six months using the mind and the body, I achieved it first time. And I have changed a lot during that. And I think I worked it out a little bit myself, but if I hadn't met this guy, I think I'd still be banging my, I'd still be doing the sports, but I wouldn't be doing it in the same way. And it changed me as a person as well. So what happened? So I met a guy. I didn't meet him. Actually, I've never met him. You know, the power of the internet. So I, my endurance sports world comes in two, two ways. So number one, I want to win stuff. And I don't win a lot. But age group, I'm not the worst. I'm okay. And I really wanted to get to Kona. And I couldn't do it. My other part is I want to go out myself and just run endlessly. So I really want to run across America one day. I would love to go and run days and days on end and Like some days I will just go out and run till I can't run anymore. I really, I ran, when I first moved to Singapore, I had this idea I was going to run around Singapore. So I did, I'm 125K in 18 hours just for myself. So I have a real, so part of my endurance world is, could I just, like I would seriously like to run across America would be the most amazing thing ever. The other part is I want to compete. And so what happened was after banging my head relentlessly and getting to the age of 40 something, I grew up enough to know that I needed to listen to someone else. And I think most endurance athletes, so here's the point, we're all A-types, so you all think you know it, so you don't listen, so you don't get a coach, 
And that is the biggest mistake I think most people make. And the coach I found was this guy who said, who, so what happened was he would send me a training plan every week. So swim 15K, ride 300K, run 70 to 80K. And I got three to five pages of mental training every week. And I had to read and understand and think about that training. And the trick was, so he gave me this, when you train, go to the changing room. If you're going swimming, change into your swimming costume, unzip your head, put your brain on the hook, get in the pool, do not think. Learn to stop self-analyzing. Learn to stop breaking down every performance while you're doing it. And just do. So this idea, if you're thinking about how far you've come and you're thinking about how far you've gone, you're not thinking about the right now. But try to do it. How often do you stay in the now? You know, we're not, you know, this, we're not the first to talk about mindfulness in the now. It was so hard. It was so hard. It annoyed, I'm not going to swear, it annoyed the shit out of me. He said to me, I want you to bike really slowly for three months till you get your head straight. So I couldn't cycle with my friends. I'd be cycling and slow people were cycling past me. I hated it. I had to run slowly and I hated it. Because until you can run without thinking and bike without thinking. And it changed. It really how, did changed. You, how do you manage to not think? What did you kind of approach did you use? So I used the counting approach to start. So can you simply count and only think about counting while you're doing it? So count your steps. So the simple thing is that rhythm in your head. One, two, three. And it can go on, or you can go one, two, three, or what is your rising up to you, 150. Took me months, not months, took me weeks to get to 10. I mean, my mind, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, is over-adrenalized. I can't stop thinking about stuff. But it wasn't until uh, I did this run in Burma. I was on holiday in Burma. Uh, I was training, and I did a 21K run, and I counted the whole way. I counted the whole way. And I got back, and I was like, what? And I... It sounds, again, crazy, but almost like in a trance. And I went out for a simple training run. I ran 132 half in the heat of uh, Myanmar just for my own run. I didn't feel that crazy hard, and I was just floating along. And it was like, oh, my word, it works. Like, it really worked. I got super excited. And uh, a practicing of keeping the mind still. And until what number did you count doing a 21K run? So so the, the way it works is I take eight... So... Coming back to the technicality of it, 91 steps per minute is the perfect cadence for running, okay? With each foot. So 108 if you count both, but just count one, 91. I'm super lucky, so my natural is 89. So I've been trying to get it to 91, I got to 90, but my coach is like, that's, that's absolutely fine. So 90 a minute, 90 minutes. So it's about uh, 8,000 that you get to. And I went through 1,000, I count on the finger. So roughly about 8,000. So how... Then this helped you to get to corner, or this, 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 this mental, yes. mental benefit. How did it help? Yeah. 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 So I, there was Ironman Korea. I had tried Ironman several times, and I was half an hour away of qualifying. I'm a really poor swimmer. I'm an average cyclist. I'm a decent runner. So I can run like a 302 marathon, which still pains me because it should be 259. I have two minutes left, and I'm 51. And if I don't sort that out, that will, that will leave me scarred for a while. So how I got it was training harder, but training. But so Grant Giles, which is the guy, which I'll always, he sent me a piece of paper. So I did all this training about being in the now, never thinking. So I'm in Korea. I had to be uh, 11th in my age group. There was 300 in my age group. I had to be 11th. And he said to me this, the whole of the swim, I want calm mental focus. Don't think about the race. Absolutely calm. 
stroke by stroke. So literally, one arm in, one arm in. Just think about that, stroke, stroke, stroke. Get on the bike, pedal, but not, not super hard, but just solid. He said, nothing happens until 21K to go in the marathon. At that, I want you to, and he said, so he said, in the morning when you wake up 4 a.m. for Ironman, stand in front of the mirror, look at the mirror, and get super fired up. Get super angry, super pissed off, super fired up. Like no one's gonna take this from you, absolutely no one. And get almost like in a rage, and then stop. Hold all that, try to stop, put it away, and you don't touch that until 21K to go in the marathon. Because that in an Ironman is where everybody falls apart. They've used all their emotional energy. They've used every bit of it, and they have nothing. Until then, hold that still. So I did, and so I swam, and I came out in, actually I swam really well, an hour and five minutes, which for me was, was, I was so excited. I almost like stopped there. I was like, this is awesome. And I biked, but when I came off the bike, I was in 34th in my age group. And there's only 11 spots, I'm like, and I got really, oh, for a moment, I remember Grant saying, no, just run. Now the run was hilly and hot. For as a runner, it was fantastic. So it was two loops, very hilly, like really, really hilly, really hot. And the first loop I just ran and I was moving quite well. And then as I got to the start of the second loop, there was a big hill down and I didn't, I didn't want to use my anger on that. And I remember, can't wait. And I got to the bottom of the hill and then started the really hill, like 19K to go. And there was this almighty, I'm like, all right, that's it. I'm getting super fired up now and use all of this emotion that everyone else has wasted. Everyone else has wasted that deep. And there's only, so uh, I think I sent to you uh, Mark Allen, who was one of the great Ironman. So he says, we can only go to the well. So this is the idea of going to your inner self three times in your life. You can go to the wells because it deeply, deeply exhausts you. So go into the well. How deep can you go into that well of reserve? And it's, it's, it's tiring. And it's super hard to get in there because it hurts like... And use all of that anger to go into that well deeper than everyone. And I, literally from the canon of it, I was like, that's it. And I just started sprinting. Like, I, mean, I wasn't sprinting because it was the end of the marathon, right? I wasn't sprinting. But it felt like I was sprinting with 19K to go. And that was the single point. That was like, wow, my mind controlled those emotions, not the physicality. Controlled those emotions to go. I, like, I get excited thinking about it now. And like I started flying up these hills. I was going past people. And, and it was this... All of a sudden, I was like, what? There was a clear difference in where I held myself, the way I ran for those last 19K. And uh, yeah, I passed the last guy in the shoot, uh, a friend of mine, and I passed him in the shoot with 300 meters to go to take the last slot to Kona. And if I hadn't used my mind in that reserve of, not anger, but uh, everything you've done, that six months of getting up at four in the morning to swim in the pool. Uh, and that was the use of the mind, not the body. Did you then afterwards also have been more able now to control your emotions and control yes. your... Yes. How, what's, what's the impact of these type of like, dwells? So I don't, I don't worry. I definitely... So I'm, everyone's different, right? I don't care about the future. I have... I do not worry. Like, I don't worry. Like, whether I'm right or wrong, I have a huge belief it will all be fine. So you know that... You know, what, what, what's the phrase uh, in that film, The Best Marigold Hotel, a famous film? Uh, it says... Uh, It'll be all right in the end. And if it's not all right, it's not the end. I always believe it'll be all right. I used to worry a lot about the past. I'm a real coulda, shoulda, woulda. I didn't do that investment. I should have done that. So my brain dwells on the past. And some people worry about the future. I have no care about the future. I know I'll be fine. Maybe I won't be. I don't know. 
What this helped me do was to try to forget about the past as well. Because it doesn't help, right? It doesn't help. It doesn't help. So what has helped me in entrepreneurship is to just have this relentless belief, do what you can today. Do it every day. Uh, my downside is I don't have a business plan for my business, which I know some investors are freak out about. Uh, I have a belief that we know what we're doing. But if we concentrate on that, so it's helped me understand staying in the present moment. And the same for the endurance sports now. When I, I really want to focus on running a lot and a long way now, when you run 100 miles, when things are going well, prepare because they're going to go badly. But in the converse, when they're going badly, they're going to go well. And if you can stay in the present moment and just accept that is not a continuum of it's where it's going to be. And I think that's where endurance sports and the mind come together. So I've used that a lot to stop worrying about the past. I still worry, which is stupid, right? Why should I worry about the past? I can't change it, right? But I do it. I do it. I have to. So I use this ability. And uh, I, I, uh, yeah, I believe in karma a lot more. I, uh, at Bamboo, we meditate every day, 10 minutes every day. I have a, uh, and if you've heard a guy called Wim Hof, who should have a look, he's a breathing cold water. I actually, uh, so I breathe every morning. I, I, uh, I do these breathing techniques every morning, whereby I hold my breath, try to pass out, then I have a cold shower. So I've had a cold shower for like a year and a half now, even in Scotland in the winter. Uh, and I use, and again, I use my mind. I go in the shower and it's freezing cold in the winter in Scotland. Super good for you. And then when I step into it, I just calm my mind. I think that many of the, your kind are succeeding also because they have a routine. Mm. What's, what are your secret sources to, to routines in endurance sports and also entrepreneurship? So back to relentless positivity. Don't let the, don't worry about, so the number one routine is to always be positive. So there's not a routine, that's a mindset, uh, positivity about it. The other routine, so from entrepreneurship, is that I should speak to everybody in my firm every day and ask them something not related to work. How was your weekend? How was this? How was lunch? How did you do? Try to remember, did you enjoy that movie? That personal connection with everybody every day, I say I can't do with everybody as the firm, increases. Uh, my routine that I have to get better at, and I am really trying, is I have a large propensity to eat crap. Ice cream, chocolate and stuff, and I know it's not good. And my routine is to eat better food as soon as my mind strays on to eating rubbish. Uh, so that's a routine. I don't, I don't, am I a routine guy? Maybe I am with that subconsciously, right? I don't write things down to say I must. I don't get up early. My cold shower is a routine now. I started a year and a half ago. I have a cold shower every day, which is just strange. I also like to spend half an hour every day watching pointless stuff. So I watch America's Got Talent. I watch poker. I watch pointless uh, stuff. And then uh, every almost every day I read a, an endurance. I read a little magazine on long-distance running. Because my brain is powered by, I want to run across America. I want to go and run around. So I have this uh, you know, 24-hour track thing I've mentioned. I really want to run 100 miles at the track in 24 hours. So one of the, if you want to test your mind, go to a running track and run. I think it's the coolest, purest, most amazing mind test ever. I've only got to 10 hours and then my body broke before my mind. I think my mind is strong enough to run 24 hours at the track. But a routine of always thinking about endurance and doing stuff to test you is really important. Mm -hmm. I think <clears throat> talking about like mine also, I think uh, you watched last two weeks ago, Kipchoge's. Um, I did. You did? What do you think? So I, you know, like 201.39 after his like 2.25. He, his ability to not show, look at his mental state when he runs, right? Apart from being the most beautiful runner 
ever. If you want to, if you want to learn how to run, Kipchoge, he's also, and again, being a fanboy. So, you know, in, I'm a groupie. I'm a fanboy, right? I, I am a huge fanboy. Uh, and so he is very humble. He, in his training camp, he's still there cleaning the toilets, eating with everybody. He doesn't live in a five-star hotel. He's super humble. Again, I don't know him, but, and the portrayal of media, you never know if that's true or not. But look at his face. He never contorts. He has this calmness of mind, right, which appears. He, he has the same the whole time. I think as a display of mental strength, because you know that hurt, right? He was in 14, 45 Ks, eight and a bit times in a row. The word I would use is beautiful. Mm. Everyone who's not a fanboy, Kipchoge, just won the Berlin Marathon in two hours. and Two hours, one minute and 39. It was the largest increase He took a minute and 20 seconds off the world record. He also brought into reality that sub two hours, like Roger Bannister's four minute, I think there was this real belief that we it couldn't be broken. And I think a 201.39 is still a long way off, but I think he really put that there. And if you listen to him, again, he's sponsored by Nike, so nothing's impossible, which is their phrase, so maybe he does use that. But Kichobi did one of the world's great sports. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Talking about failure for a second, because you also sure. mentioned earlier you had uh, a failure on the entrepreneurship side. Yep. Amazing. Well yep. done. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And at the same time, also, you couldn't make it to the corner for yep. three years. So what's been what's been your experience um, uh, for, on, on that? And, and what did you learn particularly? I think particularly on the entrepreneurship side, it's important to talk about this. Nothing, sure. I think not much mentioned yet in South East Asia. Um, yep. Failures on Asia in general is not something that's talked about sure. too much. So what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, nobody wakes up and wants to fail, right? So, and I think it is celebrated in some cultures and not here. You're right. I think in Asia, it is not celebrated, but it's a reality. Uh, I think it's I think it's really hard for people. I think it's really, really hard, right? I think it's, nobody wants to admit it. And I think it's going to take a long time to become, I mean, again, I've never worked in the Valley, but I think it's apparently cool to fail. I think it's a long way off yet until being, failing is cool. But so I invested in not 10, maybe eight startups, in the last few years before I started doing bamboo. And I think, you know, I'm seeing firsthand the reality that, you know, most of them will fail, not all of them, but most of them. So there's two levels to it. It hurts on a personal level, right? It hurts the individual, right? Like, it, it hurts, like it hurts. I think it really hurts personally on the individual. And I don't think people understand that enough. It hurts so much easier to get a job, uh, Because, well, actually, you get fired from a job, but it hurts you personally. So I don't think we've seen the kickback from that yet. I think most startups will fail. I think we all believe we're the one. I believe Bamboo's the one, but I'm probably just as misguided as everybody else. So I think we haven't seen the real hurt of that yet. Uh, and I think most people will go back and get a proper job. Uh, my experience of failure is twofold. So one is comical and one is not so uh, I am colorblind I started uh, when I backpacked in Australia I picked fruit for a living picked grapes picked load I started picking tomatoes I didn't realize that is not a job for colorblind people because you cannot you can't pick the red green tomatoes you have to pick the fully ones I got fired four from four farms in a row and it kind of kicked me a little bit I kicked, I shouldn't have applied for the job so maybe not a, not entirely great but you know getting fired from roles there's only jobs I've ever been fired from and in endurance sports I My only ever did, did not finish was at a 100-kilometer running race. A team of four of us were doing 100, the Mackle House Trail in Hong Kong. 
at the 30K mark, one guy dropped out. At the 60K mark, another guy dropped out. There was only two, me and a friend called Rob Hart, uh, who I've run tens of thousands of kilometers. We have run so far together. A South African guy lived in Hong Kong. He's climbed the Seven Summits. He's climbed Everest. This guy is, if you want a man mental toughness, this dude is as tough as they come. And at the 80K mark, I dropped out. I think it hurt me for two years. My own mental, that, you know, I told you I regret the past. I was like, and I dropped out because I hurt too much. But did I? Did I really? Still, I still question it today. Did I really hurt that much? And I think, you know, if if, if bamboo failed, I would be like, because it feels today we're, we're on the right track. And then you would think, what did we do wrong? And I think that's what failure would do to people that will really make them question themselves. Is it good in the long run? Yeah, I think it is. But I think the short term, yeah, nobody wants it. I, uh, it is celebrated, but it... And I've had a bit of it, and uh, and I'll have more, I'm sure. Mm. What are you excited about? What's what's next for you? <sighs> so besides running in America. Yeah. So what's exciting for me? Uh, everything. Everything's exciting for me. Uh, <laughs> I won't tell you what was exciting yesterday. I was walking past the donut store and not buying one. I felt pretty excited that I that was a pair of the mind. I actually queued up. I was in Malaysia at a meeting. I actually queued up to buy. So just talking about the mind, I know this sounds ridiculous. I stood there and I got my money out and there was one guy in front of me. And I know I'm trying not to eat crap and I'm trying not to buy this donut. And it doesn't help, right? You shouldn't buy, you shouldn't, I mean, they're awesome. Anyway, uh, I'm excited by a, so from a personal level, I've been injured for nine months. I ripped my hamstring off my leg surfing. I haven't really run a step for nine months. Put on 10 kilos, which doesn't help. I want to, I want to run again. I want to run a long way again. I keep, I keep seeing events that I want to do. So at the end of this year, there is a 12-hour race around McGritchie Reservoir. It is a wonderful, pointless, mind-sapping activity. So what's exciting me is getting back to finding an activity that I can't do. So here's the point. What excites me? Iron Man doesn't, I want to do Iron Man again. It doesn't excite me. You and I now could walk away from this podcast and do a 17-hour Ironman right now. And that would be cool, but it doesn't excite me. I want to go and find something that I can't do, that I'm super scared of, that I really, really, really can't do. So but that's so, so far, that's 24 hours at the track. I can't do it. Like, that excites me massively, to find an event that scares the living daylights out of me, and I, I can't do. That's why Bamboo excites me too. I don't know. Like, I don't know. I've never done a startup that worked before. I did one and it failed. Uh, the the one that I did a long time ago. I am going to be so excited. So what's success for Bamboo? You know, is it getting sold? Maybe. Am I a capitalist? Do I want it to be profitable and make money? Yes. Do I want to make a return out of it? Yes. It would be crazy exciting that if I made Bamboo work. I guess coming back to the point that was mentioned to you from your investor in Hong Kong, mm. do what you do best at every single day. You know, this, this phrase I use, chop wood, carry water. So there's a triathlete called Simon Whitfield. He was the first winner of the gold medal uh, in uh, triathlon in Olympics. If you want to think about you, how you should use the brain, when asked how does he train, he said, I chop wood and I carry water. So on the base level, we're all trying to feed ourselves, feed our family, get through life. We're not cavemen. But, you know, you have to chop wood to get fire and you have to carry water from where it is to bring back to yourself. And... I use that for business, chop wood, carry water, simple. Do good things every day, build good products, sell, talk to your people. That's, of course, it's way more than that. But yeah, it excites me. If I can keep doing that, that would be awesome. Nice. Amazing. Thank you so much for this. 
That's all right, man. Thanks, man. That was fun. Thank cool. you. Great. That's it. I'm looking forward to hearing your feedback on this. Please connect and reach out. You can find the podcast on the website called uberhuman.me. Facebook, it's uberhuman.me. On Twitter, uberhuman underscore me. Instagram, uberhuman.me. And LinkedIn, Mastermind and Body. And obviously, email address we also have, which is hi.uberhuman at gmail.com. Please switch out, subscribe to the channel as well, share with your friends, and looking forward to hearing more from you. Thank you.